I like to think that anything that I ask anybody to do, I'm prepared to do it myself or I've done it before myself. Welcome to the Happy Workplace Project, the podcast that explores insights from insiders in how to develop a positive workplace culture. Delighted to be joined today by Mr. James Taylor, the Chief Executive of McIlvary Recruitment and Retention. James, 25 years with the business. You've won multiple awards for the innovations in the customer space that you've implemented over that time. Recently been awarded the world-class status for the seventh time in the Best Companies Awards. Where did it all go right? God, that's a hell of a question. Where did it all go right? I mean, that's that's some introduction as well, Darius. You've obviously enjoyed working for us for how many years? 12 years now. 12 years, so you've done half of my tenure. Where did it all go right? We've always had an employee-first focus in our organisation. The world-class status, seven times out of seven for entering best companies, I think is testament to how much time and money we invest in building a great culture and a great employee experience. So tell me a bit more about that culture in five words. How would you describe the culture at Max? Five words only. (laughs) Right, so our culture at Max, we actually have branded it um, and we call it Chief Exec of Your Own Desk. I think it works really well because Generation Y, Generation Z who are entering the workplace enjoy and desire involvement more than we would have done in how a company makes decisions. Why do you do what you do? And by creating this chief exec of your own culture, giving people a certain level of autonomy really means that we walk the walk when it comes to giving people that bit of extra freedom that they probably crave that they don't always get in every workplace. Yeah, absolutely. I think the you know being part of this culture, I think the thing that really resonates with me is that ability to be accountable have a strong sense of ownership and a wide sense of responsibility for the operation that you're involved in. It allows you to operate more towards the top of your envelope, I think. When we're talking about culture, I'm really interested to understand where you have started when it comes to implementing that message and and really getting traction amongst the workforce. How do you go about implementing your culture? I don't think it is my culture, per se. I think I am a cultural ambassador for McIlwain, but I don't think one person can drive culture. I think culture is driven by the behaviours that are displayed by a leadership team. Mm-hmm. I believe that we have an incredibly strong leadership team. And as you know, you experienced it, you lived through it with me. When the pandemic hit, one of the things that we wanted to ensure that we concentrated on was the cultural element, because we had some people that were working and working harder than they'd ever worked, and other work colleagues and friends that had been furloughed through no fault of their own. And I think most organisations during that first couple of months of furlough sort of experienced the people that were at work feeling like they had a purpose, but then the people that were on furlough because the weather was nice, posting their pictures of drinking Aperol spitzes in the, in the garden, perhaps creating a sense of envy and a little bit of injustice for those that were grafting harder than 
they'd ever grafted. So we invested in an external facilitator to come and help us to redefine at that point what makes Max special, what is our vision, what is our why, and what are the values that we want to underpin a culture moving forward. So I think we kind of didn't let the crisis go to waste from a cultural perspective. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we've come out of this period of time with our foot firmly on the accelerator and we're achieving the results we're achieving. And could you tell us a bit about the vision and the values of the organisation? How did they come about? How were they implemented? It's through team. Mm-hmm. So I'm a huge fan in leadership that involvement is ownership. I'm a huge fan that one person cannot change everybody's life and cannot change the entire direction of the culture of an organisation. It requires the entire team to be on board. So when we had those sessions with Andy Gallimore, who's our culture consultant and the the guy that delivers retention services now to our clients, because I think we did it that well, that as you know, we've now packaged it and offer it to, to our customers to help them with retention. I think that the work we did, the extra work that we put in behind the scenes, allowed us to come up with a vision statement, which is building great futures one career and one team at a time, which translates to recruitment and retention, which meant something to people. It wasn't just about we fill jobs, we make a fee. It was actually in recruitment, you have a chance to actually improve somebody's life through their career. So I think the why is a strong why. I think it works for us. And I think the extra services that we've developed over time have supported that vision. So it it all links beautifully well. The values are a set of values that we witnessed at play for the people that weren't on furlough. And they were a set of values that we watched evolve over that six month period that we thought as a leadership team, we want to bottle it, capture it, and then ensure that those values that have been displayed are values that stick with the organisation once the pandemic is over. And I think we, you, your colleagues on our leadership team have done a brilliant job of instilling those values. Once we had kind of worked out what they were, we then involved, again, involvement is ownership, the entire organisation in describing the good behaviours and the bad behaviours that sit under each of those five or six values. And as a result of involving them in that, I think they're living and living strong. Yeah, I I absolutely second that for sure. I think the beauty about where we got it right was not just having a top-down approach where the leadership team goes away for a few days, defines a set of values and then imposes them into the organisation. As you said, instead, it was an observational approach of what are we seeing that's working really well? How do we articulate it? And by default, it means something to people before we've even got into exercises of implementing it. Is that fair to say? For sure, absolutely. And I was delighted that we brought back an old McEldowie value in find a way. Yeah. And, and that's not for us to kind of, as business leaders, have some member of staff come in talking to us about a challenge that they've got and they just pushed the problem up to us. That's about us encouraging our people to have an ongoing sense of innovation and ownership of a problem that 
along with the psychological safety that we've created in the organisation, means that they don't feel that they need to come all the time with everything to us. We empower them to find a way and to find a solution to challenges that they're facing for their candidates, for their clients, but also internally as well. Yeah. And just thinking about what you said over the last two minutes there, we talked about the way that the values uh, were conceived. At the time, the organisation was smaller than it is now. So people have come in since those values came to light. How have you been able, on a day-to-day basis, to keep people involved in that vision, caring about that vision and buying into it? I mean, that is a great question. And, and I think it is one that is kind of the, it's, it's the, it's the top of the mountain for all business leaders. Once you've got that right, you know that you've got a fantastic culture that has cascaded through the entire organisation. For me, the answer to that is communicate, 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 and hold people to account Mm -hmm. for their behaviours against that set of values. Now, I believe that we do it tremendously well insofar as the communication. It's not always been a strength of ours. I think, again, that the pandemic meant that we had to find a new rhythm to our operating model, to the way that we work. And I believe that by the Ops Board meeting once a week, I believe that by the entire company meeting once a week, I believe that by the management team having one-to-ones with their employees once a week, we've got a brilliant flow of communication, which means that the values, it means that good behaviours are recognised and are kept alive on a daily, if not even hourly basis. So I think for me, it's about ensuring that the values isn't a project that you do, that you whack on a poster on the wall, that you never come back to. It's about ensuring that these are things alongside business performance that get talked about in people's one-to-ones. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's some great work going on in the background at the moment in terms of building those behaviours into something more tangible from a one-to-one perspective so that we're not only measuring performance but also how people are contributing to the culture and the um, the, the sense of togetherness in the organisation. I mean, that's right, we're looking to formalise it, aren't we? Yeah. But don't underestimate the power of the intuitive assessment of how people's behaviours are being lived versus the corporate values. I think intuitively we are very aware of who is and who isn't on stream when it comes to living by the values. Let's talk a little bit about your leadership style. For me, you're somebody that's always come across as truly caring and available for our people. And I know how heavily you prioritise open uh, communication and authenticity. I guess what I'm keen to really understand here is what are your non-negotiable behaviours and standards that you live by that you expect the teams to live up to as well? I do believe I'm caring. I do believe I'm authentic. I think my, my main non-negotiable is integrity rocks. And that is a very personal value to me. I, I believe that people should behave behind closed doors, how they behave when they're in front of a crowd or in front of an audience. So integrity rocks is a massive one for me because without integrity, how does the leader, the manager, trust their people? And I want to create and have created, in my opinion, an organisation that 
is thriving because people feel psychologically safe. But that comes from integrity being lived top down through the organisation to allow us to trust that what we're expecting to be done is being done, to trust that people are behaving the way that we've set out our corporate values. And as a result, I think the success can be attributed in great part to the psychological safety that everybody feels when they walk through the door. Let's talk about that a little bit more because I think for me, the standout moment in the last two years was a communication that you put out via email to the organisation pretty close to the beginning of the pandemic in which you said that you trusted our people to do the things that they needed to do to get the job done, but you underpinned it with the importance of putting family first because at the time schools were closed, children were being parented at home, and you knew from first-hand experience the pressures that that was putting on those individuals or families that had children at home. So for me, that received you know great feedback from the organisation as a whole. And that was the standout example of something that is a psychologically safe gesture or initiative. But what else do you do to help people feel psychologically safe? You know, how do you let them fail and learn and all of that sort of good stuff? I've got another couple of phrases, I guess, that I use and I think that I live my own life by. Number one is observe the masses and do the opposite. And if you do live your life that way, you're going to get some stuff wrong. Because the masses are going in a certain direction for a reason, right? But observe the masses do the opposite comes about because I've, I've always wanted to stand out from the crowd. I've always wanted us to stand out from the 40 or 1,000 recruitment companies that exist in the UK. And I want our people in particular to stand out ahead of their competitors for being prepared to go the extra mile or to over-communicate to candidates that have come second on a shortlist. So observe the masses do the opposite, I think really does create a sense of, I am able to innovate as the chief exec of my own desk. And you can only create the psychological safety by allowing somebody to make a mistake or a bad decision or screw something up and telling them that that's okay actually you're going to learn from that experience next time yeah goes back to when you were a, a baby learning to walk yeah did you just get up and start running no you fell over god knows how many times so yeah. observe the opposite do the masses is is one of the ways that i live my life the the final one and i think this could well be a thread through any of my answers when it comes to leadership is that people remember the way that you make them feel mm-hmm. And if people feel psychologically safe, then they're going to bring the best version of themselves to work. Mm -hmm. Nobody deals well with a stressful level of anxiety. Mm -hmm. So I think as a business leader, it is up to us to create something which is psychologically safe so that people can rock into work and be the best that they can possibly be. And I think that ties in really nicely to actually measuring the performance of the organisation I think years ago. Google did the Aristotle study, which was ultimately where the concept of psychological safety came from, whereby they found that those teams with the highest levels of psychological safety performed the best. And I think it's fair to say in recent months, that's exactly what we've experienced as a business. I I think since the pandemic, actually, and the pandemic was a leveller. None of us had a clue what was going on or quite how to be or how to operate. We were 
we were sort of winging it, weren't we, for a period of three or four months. And I actually think that that, that rebased us and has allowed us to, to build new Macaldawi from a brand new foundation that feels like, and I hope it feels like, it's not James Taylor's Macaldawi. I would like everybody in the business to feel like it is their business as well. So we've talked a lot about what's gone right so far, and we've touched on the fact that you uh, really hold authenticity and open communication in high regard. Um, tell me a little bit about the sacrifices you've had to make to achieve what you have with McIlvary, or what the cost of that achievement has been. I, I don't typically look backwards in that kind of a way at what sacrifices I've made per se. I believe in work-life choices rather than work-life balance. So the majority of decisions I've made, I've known the flip side of the coin. But I guess when you look at, you know, I was a cricketer, I played a pretty good level of cricket. When I first joined McIlvary back in 1997, it was very much a 12-hour day culture. And then on a Friday, if you had a good day, you'd go down the pub at midday and not come back. And I was a decent cricketer, and it meant that I couldn't train during the week. And it then meant that on a Saturday, if I'd been down the pub since midday on a Friday, I wasn't necessarily at my most sober come match day. <laughs> and so I played an extra year of cricket and then gave up cricket altogether. I kind of went cold turkey. And I think I missed that for a couple of years. So that, that was a definite sacrifice. You then look at how you build your career in recruitment. And it's very different today. It's, it's not the same as it used to be because of all the tech that we have at our fingertips. But back in the day when I started out, if you weren't on the phones until 8, 30, 9 o'clock every night, you couldn't get hold of candidates that you wanted to place in jobs because we didn't have mobile phones. There was not really any email. And so I definitely sacrificed in my 20s that social life. But it was a choice I made. And that choice that I made to throw myself into my career and into working for McIlvary gave me opportunities to travel the world, to buy my first house, age 22, which a lot of my friends that had gone down the normal kind of milk round graduate trainee route just didn't have. So I don't see them as sacrifices, I see them as choices that I made. You, if you then look laterally, and I'm pretty certain that this will be a familiar feeling for most parents, is I don't think any of us kind of look back at our career and think, God, I wish I'd ever spent an extra hour at work. Whereas I think we do look back and think, I wish I could have got home for bedtime or I wish I'd have hung around to take the kids to school. And, and I think, you know, touching on one of the things that you mentioned earlier about the start of the pandemic, when I sent around that message to all McIlvary staff, which was, if you've got kids and you're now having to homeschool, don't worry about getting the job done this week. Take this week off so that you can fathom out how you're going to get the job done for the rest of this period of time, not necessarily in between the hours of nine till five, but to suit you and to suit your family. I think now that I live that and I've got the balance right and I do take my kids to school and I do pick the kids up from school, I am able to cook them a meal, more than one meal a week and not feel guilty. 
And because I'm able to do it and not feel guilty about it, the rest of the business feels the same. So I believe that that psychological safety is as authentic as it can possibly be because I'm living it. And I will not ask anybody to do what I can't do myself. Okay. And you've spent a couple of minutes there uh, talking through what I've heard is a real strong sense of motivation and responsibility, i.e. these were choices that I made. How do you go about motivating the workforce? What's your style? I like to think that anything that I ask anybody to do, I'm prepared to do it myself or I've done it before myself. But I think more powerfully than that, what is my leadership style? I'm a collaborator, I'm a natural collaborator. And I believe that better decisions are made the more people that are involved in making the decision. I believe that once the top team, the ops board have made a decision, that one of my main skills is the ability to inspire others to come on the journey with us. And it's not fake inspiration. It's an ability to inspire others because I am truly passionate about what it is that we're doing and why we've chosen to do it in that way. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. I think something that's going through my head post the pandemic is that we've moved to a more hybrid working model in which we've got, you know, let's call it half of the workforce working from home, half of the workforce in the office. Obviously meetings happen, etc. In what ways have you facilitated connection in the business as a result of us being more remote? Well, I don't think I can take the credit for the ongoing daily facilitation. I think that's down to an amazing job that you guys have done. But, but I've been a huge advocate, again, of the over-communication piece. And I think one of the things that I did early in the pandemic, which still happens now, is I am happy to open up my house to teams of people for me to go on a walk and talk with them, where I think if you're stood shoulder to shoulder as opposed to face to face in the meeting room, it facilitates a level of conversation which is much freer and feels safer. But I think the fact that we either start those sessions or end those sessions with me cooking breakfast or brunch or even lunch for the people that come to my house really makes people open up and tell me exactly what they're feeling and saying the truth as opposed to saying what they think I want to hear. Yeah, okay, fantastic. Moving the conversation towards back towards behaviours and values, it's really clear to see that McElderry have done a fantastic job in making those live. What's the consequence for people that don't live up to those standards and don't operate in, in, in the right way? People always deserve a chance. If, they, if people have decided to come and work for McElderry, decided to trust us sufficiently with this particular stage of their career, then people deserve a chance to fully understand and to get used to our values and our culture. So if people don't display the correct values early on, then we would have conversations with those people, again, that are psychologically safe behind closed doors, one-to-one. -one. Most people then understand the importance of the culture and 
why we have the values and why we look for a certain level of behaviours. For people that would continue to step the wrong side of that, ultimately, those people would work out that Makaldawi is not for them. And I think the same goes that, you know, one bad apple. And I think that we are huge believers in the fact that you're better to have a hole in the team know what's coming <laughs> than an asshole in the yeah. team. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In recent years, there have been some really significant world events. I think about things like COVID-19. Uh, we've obviously seen the Black Lives Matter movement and hashtag me too. What lessons have you learned and what implement, implementations have you delivered into Max as a result of those? I mean, I think that the COVID and navigating a business through the pandemic will be a huge achievement for many, many business leaders. Will we ever see anything like it again? History suggests yes, we will, because history is the best predictor of the future. But boy, what a challenge it's been. And I think for me, the, the biggest learn from COVID is that you need to expect the best, but plan for the worst. And I think that is absolutely the way that we, and we literally took the COVID period in two day chunks, if you remember, as an ops board, we were meeting twice a week, yeah. which allowed us to make decisions and pivot. And then I think from a Black Lives Matter perspective, I think all of that stuff with BLM really shone a light on equality, diversity and, and inclusion across the board. And I think one of the learns and the takeaways that we took from that is that our language from an EDNI perspective was very alpha, it was very male. And it took us to have a graduate intake in 2021, which was predominantly all, all, all guys, it was all males that, that came on our grad scheme in 2021, tweaking the language meant that the 2022 grad scheme was majority girls. So like, I think for me, the lesson for all of us is that there are things that we can do, simple things, even just down to the language on your website, which can make you better prepared for ED&I. I want to wrap this up by talking a bit more about you. Since the pandemic, we've seen that levels of burnout have gone up significantly in organisations. I'm really keen to hear about your relationship with your own well-being and what you do to protect and optimise it. So I think there's three different strings to well-being. There's the, the financial well-being, there's the mental health side of it, and then there's the physical health side of it. Financially, I've got that covered with people that come and help me and make sure that I'm investing in the right things and I'm making sure that I get the kids now with the energy crisis to switch off the lights in their bedrooms and all of those good things that you can do to impact finances on a day-to-day -day basis. From a mental health perspective, we've got an employee assistance program at work, which I have used over the last couple of years. Uh, it's just somebody that isn't part of the organisation that you can just go and talk at sometimes to get stuff off your chest, which I find very, very useful. And I think it's a sign of strength as opposed to a sign of weakness to be able to go and see a therapist or a counsellor. From a physical health perspective, it's probably the area that I've struggled with the most, truthfully. 
one of the big learns about being at home and working from home is that when you're at work five days a week, you always think, God, I wish I could work around one day a week so I could go for a run or go to the gym. That doesn't happen. <laughs> so working from home five days a week does not mean you're going to go for a run five days a week. For me, I increase the number of walks that I go on. I do 10K walk and talks with the team. I walk pretty much every day myself. It's a great question to ask me in November because I can be a right miserable sod in November. I absolutely have always suffered from seasonal affective disorder. I hate the fact the clocks have gone back. I hate the fact it's dark at four o'clock. What do I do? I make sure that I'm out in daylight hours experiencing the earth, walk around the fields, walk around the countryside. Brilliant. What's the greatest lesson you've learned in your career? The biggest lesson is don't take everything that everybody says at face value. I think that would be the biggest lesson. Why? Because most people have an ego and most people are hardwired to look out for themselves before looking out for other people. I believe we built a business where there's very little ego around the ops board. And I think that is another big part of why we're achieving the success that we're achieving, because we all want to see one another do really well. But I think it's very naive to think that most people and most businesses have the same thing. And taking a longer term view of uh, passing the knowledge on, what do you think the next generation should be being taught now in order to equip them for the future? That's a brilliant question. I work as an enterprise advisor for a special education needs school and through the Leicester and Leicestershire Enterprise Partnership. So what I can tell you firsthand is that from a skills perspective, the majority of careers teams in secondary schools aren't equipping their students for what work and a business requires from them the day that they work in, walk, walk into the ring. So if I was to highlight the one area it would be, we've got to ensure that the kids of today, the workers of tomorrow, are better equipped digitally with digital skills. And if you look at the number of job vacancies that big blue chips have in the IT department, it's enormous. And it's enormous because there's a huge skills gap. And secondary and tertiary education is unable to keep up with the speed of change that's happening in the world. So that would be the hard skills. But then let's look behaviourally. I think that the workers of tomorrow will benefit from all of their ability to access what they can now access on their phones. So I think that one of the best traits for the workers of tomorrow will be the fact that they don't wait for the company to invest in their learning and development, that those people are able to access L&D content online themselves to get themselves ready, to get themselves ahead of other people potentially in the same department that started at the same time. Okay, so last question. What is your ultimate life goal and what do you want to be remembered by? So my ultimate life goal, and it's a brilliant question this Darius, is, is to be happy to have fun and to love what I'm doing and who I'm doing it with. I've been asked at networking events and various different things over the years to stand in front of a crowd and describe myself. 
and you sometimes try and get a bit smart and how do you make sure that you're memorable in what you say I want people to remember me as just a fucking good bloke I want people to remember me as a good guy that cared that added value to their life or their career that was fun to be around and that you'd happily go for a pint in the evening with and I also want to be remembered for being a really good dad. Love that. So James, we're on to the quick fire round. We've got nine questions. Uh, one word answers where possible would be preferable. Starting with number one, what's something that you have achieved that you are proud of? Incredibly proud to have merged families with my girlfriend and her daughter. We are one of those modern day blended families and we're very happy and we all love each other. How did you react to your greatest failure? I got knocked down, but I got up again. <laughs> <laughs> Never give up, crack on, try again. What's something you regret and what would you have done differently? No regrets. What's the biggest challenge your business is facing right now? Like every other business, the spiralling costs of living. What do you like most about yourself? I refer back to an earlier answer. I'm a really good bloke who really cares about everybody in his circle. What's your biggest area of development? I am the world's most impatient man. Tell us something that you're passionate about. Friends, family, work colleagues and golf. What's the best bit of advice you've ever been given? people will always remember the way that you make them feel. And finally, what's one book or podcast you'd recommend to our listeners? A book that was written by my childhood sporting hero, the Olympic breaststroke champion Adrian Morehouse, who wrote a book called Developing Mental Toughness. And he went on to become the chief exec of a company called Lane 4, which is a company that also won the Sunday Times number one best company to work for in the UK. So I was a breaststroker. I once aspired to be a gold medal Olympian. I was nowhere near good enough because my feet never got past size nine. But I would like to emulate my hero with regards to McElderry becoming the best company to work for in the UK. Superb. James, it's been fantastic to spend time with you today. Thanks for your insights and uh, good luck with everything that you're doing. Cheers, Lewis. Thanks for joining us today. Remember to like, share and subscribe. See you next time.